The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and bona fide public money wonk, Liz Farmers. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Always glad to be here. I have a I have a chicken update because I know you were really that you were you were dying to know. <laughs> yes, we've 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 been away on we've been away on holiday break here, so I, I I've I've been waiting for <laughs> yes. an update. Yeah. So as probably everybody knows we had that huge freeze and I decided that would not be the time to put them outside. Um, literally like kicking them off a cliff. So I waited until it got warmer, but put them out and, uh, you know, our, our, um, older chicken spent a lot of time chasing them around, telling them who was boss. But the funniest part to me is, so these, these are silkies, they're white, their, their feathers are really fluffy and they look like tiny little llamas from, from far away, <laughs> like alpaca llamas. And so our dog, when, when they, when the silkies, it took them three days to figure out, to finally feel safe enough to come out of the coop. But when they came out, our dog was just standing there. He stopped and stared for a good five minutes, not moving, <laughs> staring at these little miniature llamas running around in the chicken pen. Like you could tell he had no clue what he was looking at. <laughs> Yeah, there would be some some cognitive dissonance there, I'm sure. That's interesting. So, is there like a uh, like a social hierarchy within them? Do they like literally a pecking order? No pun intended. There, yes, absolutely. That's that's where pecking order comes from, and I hadn't known that it was like it. It really is a thing. Wow. Now, yeah, I learn something every day. I, I doing a service to our listeners uh, now, knowing where that <clears throat> where that idiom comes from. Very interesting. All right. So we are, of course, back after our holiday break. Hope everyone else had their time of rest and relaxation around the holidays. And to jump back into things, we've decided to go to a topic that gives us a chance to talk about some of our familiar themes here at the podcast, but also to take those themes in some new directions. So we're talking today about infrastructure finance, and in particular, how we are financing stormwater systems and complex issues, expensive issues. And uh, as we'll hear from our, our guest a little bit later, Eric Horvath, who is the public works director for the city of South Bend, Indiana, uh, issues that take on some unique challenges when you're dealing with uh, post-industrial cities, particularly in the Midwest, and when you have, as is the case in South Bend, uh, a mandate, a top-down mandate coming from the federal government to fix the problems with that infrastructure 
uh, and fix those problems right quick. So we're talking today about infrastructure finance and some of the unique ways that that's been happening. And it does give us an opportunity to talk about some of the kind of innovation that we've seen in the infrastructure finance space, and particularly as it relates to uh, new technological kinds of developments, the internet of things, asset management systems, using data in new and creative ways, uh, all things that uh, we hear a lot about, but we, we don't often hear a lot of really great comprehensive case studies to help us understand how that process works from start to finish. We have seen uh, quite a bit of work as of late in this uh, infrastructure, creative infrastructure sort of space. I know Liz, you have um, in some of your own work looked at uh, some of the ways that this our infrastructure finance needs and some of the sort of fiscal stress that we've seen in many post-industrial cities has have kind of intersected. And in particular, you've got a great new series on, long story short, looking at the factors that contribute to severe fiscal stress in uh, in local governments. And it seems like these infrastructure management and even infrastructure neglect questions are an important part of that story. Do I have that right? Oh, yes, absolutely. And thanks for plugging it. I think this this latest one on municipal distress has really struck a chord with people. And it is largely infrastructure and infrastructure finance ties in so much to it because much like with anything that you want to spend money on and, and keep up with, if you are not responsible today with your infrastructure spending, it's going to be a hundred times worse down the road. And, and this is something that is so common with, with cities and who are, that are in some kind of form of fiscal distress is uh, one of the things I say in long story short is that getting to insolvency is a group effort. It is not today's politicians making bad decisions over the last couple of years. It is a decade or two of, of people, um, you know, just kind of putting off the tough decisions, putting off investments to, to get to a point where you, you don't have any other options as a city. And I will say that particularly for post-industrial cities, which are, you know, so spread out, were, were built in a time and spread out in a time when there was twice as many people living there and, and huge industries. And with all of that gone, but you still have the infrastructure there, it makes paying for all of that upkeep almost impossible. I mean, that's why you see this, this issue in a lot of cities. And so, uh, you know, another example I'm thinking of is Flint with the water crisis. And again, you know, lack of investment in infrastructure, it literally can be a life or death situation. Putting off those those financial investments is huge in infrastructure. Yeah, for sure. And it, the exciting thing, I think, in infrastructure finance is that even with all of those challenges, we do now have as we were saying before, some some innovation that's, I think, helped to try to get some traction on that problem, particularly in, in a lot of those post-industrial kinds of communities. I think uh, we, we certainly the, the Flints and the Chester, Pennsylvania's and, and those sorts of places mm -hmm. have gotten a lot of attention as of late. I think uh, a story that we hear maybe less about is the way that a lot of systems in those types of post-industrial or those types of, of redeveloping communities are are on the one hand, retrofitting their existing systems using technology, using better data analytics, uh, using the internet of things just to better understand how their systems work, 
all designed to to just try to say we we have a lot of capacity. A lot of these communities were built to serve a much larger population than they now serve, and so the infrastructure might actually be there. It just needs to be used smarter, it needs to be deployed more effectively. But that's easier said than done. So technology can allow for that sort of thing to happen. But the other thing that we're seeing too are just completely different approaches to thinking about what infrastructure is. There's been a lot of work uh, that you and I have both and looked at in a lot of communities that are doing what we might call green infrastructure and particularly in the stormwater management space where the whole idea is that rather than do what a traditional stormwater system does which is essentially capture water and channel it so that it can be uh, treated and then sent back out to some sort of a water source like a, a lake or a river the goal now in many systems is to capture that water where it lands so rather than have rain go down a pavement surface into a storm sewer and make its way out into the system. Instead, now maybe what we'll do is we'll plant a permeable surface, right? We'll have a, a permeable road or permeable sidewalk so that that water seeps down into the ground and is captured there. Or maybe build a rain garden or a bioswale or something like that that's designed to uh, keep that water from falling into the stormwater system in the first place. And if you can do that, as not, and that's not a solution that works everywhere, but if you can do that and do that well, then that really changes the kind of infrastructure you need. It changes the capacity in particular of your stormwater system. And that becomes perhaps a much more affordable solution and a, a much more environmentally friendly solution. So these are all new approaches that are being enabled by data and technology that in some cases are uh, have been around for a long time and are being used differently, but in some cases, brand new technology that's being deployed in some really creative ways. And so it's, it's an exciting time to, to think about infrastructure finance, realizing that we have a lot of different tools available that might redefine what kind of infrastructure we need to finance in the first place. Yeah. I, and I love the idea of that, that, that this is all so much based on, you know, on we have the stuff. <laughs> we just need to maybe re use it a little differently or rethink how we're using it. But planting a bioswale, uh, rain gardens, all of those kinds of things, those are like ancient practices. And to be and using that in conjunction with making a system work smarter. I mean, it's, it blows my mind still, like how simple, elegant and simple that is, but how, you know, cost effective and, and it really does work. That's right. But it also requires a very different sort of an approach and a very different skill set in some cases for financial leaders. And uh, it's a challenge and an opportunity, but one that clearly a lot of public finance leaders these days are embracing. Yeah. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the podcast Eric Horvath, who is the Public Works Director for the City of South Bend, Indiana, and is here today to tell us about some of the infrastructure finance uh, challenges and opportunities that they face there. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here on the Public Money Pod. You bet. Thanks, Marlo. Eric, I'm uh, really excited to, to hear the story from your point of view of South Bend's water project. Uh, when we first spoke I don't know, at some point last year, and I learned about it. I, as a public finance person, I was still amazed about how you were able to cut down the price tag on this project. But I want to step back a little bit and ask you to talk about, uh, so South Bend ha was under a consent decree. Can you explain a little bit about the consent decree, you know, the background uh, and what the challenges were in conforming to it? 
Sure, I'm happy to. And, and let me start back a little bit even further. Um, the south bend of the St. Joe River, um, and that's where it got its name. And it was a, a great place where people could port to take their canoes or boats to the Kankakee to get to the Mississippi. So you could get from the Great Lakes to the Mississippi, and it was the closest place that you could do that. And the river really provided a number of things for the early settlers. It was, of course, a transportation route, which was very important, but it also provided power. And we, we built factories on the river. Um, and then the last thing is it was a big sewer, quite honestly. It was a place where people could take their sewage and get rid of it, um, which would then go to the large uh, lake up north, which is Lake Michigan. And so at the time, it made a lot of sense to not just have the sanitary sewer, the sewer that you're flushing down your stool, but also the stormwater that when it rains, uh, hits the ground and, and has to go somewhere, go into the same pipe so that it would dilute that sanitary sewer a little bit and, and wouldn't be as nasty as it goes to the uh, river. And, and so they would just, instead of building two pipes, um, they would build one and combine it all. So it's called a combined sewer system. And so for the first hundred years of the city's history, we operated on that combined sewer system where all that sewage would go together and would go straight to the river and then be diluted. Um, and that was uh, their solution to pollution. Um, over time, uh, you know, that became um, archaic and, and treatment plants started to be built. And in 1950s, uh, we built the treatment plant. But at the time, you couldn't build a treatment plant big enough to handle all of those combined flows. And so the way they built these plants and, and they would build an interceptor line that would capture all those flows and then it would take it to a treatment plant. And during dry weather conditions, when it wasn't raining, it could handle all of that sanitary sewer. Um, and that's how those were designed. But when it rained, it was too much for the system. And so it would still have an overflow weir that it would overflow to the river. And if you didn't do that, if you plug those up, um, the sewer would have to go somewhere. So it ended up in people's basements. And mm -hmm. of course, it made a lot more sense to have it go to the river than people's basements and create an unhealthy situation. Um, the city had about 2 billion gallons of combined sewer that was overflowing to the river every year. Wow. Uh, and the EPA and, and the city entered into a consent decree that said um, we had to fix that and we had to get rid of about 90% of that sewage uh, from going to the river. If, if you look at South Bend today, the river is still a really, really important asset that we have in South Bend, uh, but not because it's a sewer, not because it provides transportation, not because factories can get power, but because it's, it's a beautiful environmental asset. People uh, fish on the river, they enjoy it, for aesthetics, they build, uh, homes along the river so they can see the beauty. And so it really has, is a different asset than it used to be. Because of that, we're trying to protect this asset and, and make sure that from environmental perspective, we're doing what we can to make sure it's a clean, safe river. So Liz mentioned a second ago, Eric, that you were able to take the price tag for complying with the uh, the EPA's consent decree down considerably. Tell us a little bit about where it was, where it ended up, and how you were able to get such a dramatic uh, reduction in the effect of all this on taxpayers. Yeah, so when, when we started uh, looking at the cost of our long-term control plan and, and what it would take to build 
bigger sewers or storage facilities to make sure that we were capturing that flow before it goes to the river and then putting it back into the system to be treated. The costs were well over $800 million um, to do that. That's just to handle this issue with the long-term control plan. Um, the other issue that we have that every city has is being an aging city, we've got aging infrastructure. And, and so we've got all these infrastructure needs that are happening with pipes uh, failing and, and other infrastructure failing. And we have in, in our system uh, over 250 miles, about half of our system is over 80 years old. So our, our pipes are reaching the end of their useful life. And we, we kind of had this double whammy coming and, and really triple whammy because you also have tighter uh, regulations coming, environmental regulations all the time. So it was just unaffordable. And a lot of old cities really don't have a good understanding of what's going on underground. I, I liken this to the transportation system. Uh, when you look at roads, you have certain capacity on roads and some have more room for additional cars and others are more congested. But with the sewers, we just don't know which ones are congested and which ones aren't. And so what we did was we worked with the University of Nordame and the master's student there to build some sensors. And these sensors then would, would tell us how much sewer is in each of these pipes. And um, what we did was these sensors talked to each other. And we built a, a model then that um, also had um, additional throttle pipes and control valves that could open and close. So it could push more sewer or less sewer to the interceptor line. What happens is downstream in the, in the system by the treatment plant, let's say the interceptor has half of its capacity, that sensor talks to the other sensors in the system. It says, you know, it's raining, you got a lot of flow, open up those valves and push more flow to me because I can handle it. And as that interceptor then fills up and it's getting ready to surcharge and back up into people's basements, then it radios back to them and tells them, hey, I'm getting full. You need to start closing your valves because I can't handle as much flow. And at some point, if the flow is too great, then we do overflow to the river. But by putting in these control valves and, and a real-time support system, uh, you know, with an overall cost of probably somewhere around $10 million, what it did was it allowed us to reduce that 2 billion gallons of flow that was going to the river every, every year to about uh, 400 million gallons. So we were able to get about 70% of our flow out of the river just by optimizing the use of the existing assets that we had. But we didn't, we couldn't do that until we knew, until we had data. We now had some data and we were looking at the data versus the model that our control plan was built on. And this model, we try to make it fit the real world. But in actuality, models are really just, they're, they're not good. They, they, you know, they, they do their best to try to figure out how much flow is going to come through a pipe and, and get to a certain area. But because there's so many unknown factors underground, like you, know, you have all sorts of stuff going on in the system that's hard to create a perfect model. You know, I think of one area in particular, Leaper Park, where we had a 7 million gallon tank required as part of, that's what our model was telling us we needed. Uh, but when we looked at the data, we found that the data was saying that that ended up only needing to be a couple million gallons. Um, so instead of spending 60 to 70 million on a tank uh, to handle flows that we thought were going to be there, and then 
that would have had a tank that never filled up, we were able to use the data to better inform us so that we realized that we could make that tank much smaller. And eventually by using that data and, and fully optimizing the system, we were able to eliminate a lot of our tanks completely. And so that was a big part of it. So what we did was we created a new model based on the data that was using artificial intelligence. So it was a cognitive hydraulic response system that was using these millions and millions of data points that we're getting every year and informing the model and self-learning. So it just continues to get smarter and smarter as, as you have different incidents. So we're able to build uh, probably the most accurate model anywhere in the world and, and have a really good feel for the exact flows that are going to happen so that we're not overbuilding or underbuilding um, any of the assets to control the sewer system. Oh, fascinating. It's a, it sounds almost uh, like the, the Terminator comes to public works or something <laughs> like uh, looking for uh, walking around looking for Sarah Connor or something like that because it certainly brings a... Uh, a whole new uh, element to this. Very, very interesting. I had a couple of quick follow-up questions on that, Eric. So uh, the the idea of, of better utilizing the capacity you have makes a, a lot of sense. Has there been any discussion about uh, what I know is happening in a lot of other stormwater management systems where the goal is maybe to trap stormwater where it lands and keep it out of the system in the first place with you know, rain gardens and bioswales and that sort of thing. Is that an option f for you all? And if so, is that part of the of the financing plan that you're building right now? Yeah, no, for, for sure. And the name of our new long-term control plan is a smarter alternative for green greener environment. And, and part of that was looking at uh, some of these green solutions that could be put into place to not allow the water in the system in the first place, as you mentioned. And, and that was an important part. It, what it did was, you know, in the Leaper Park case I talked about where we had, you know, 7 million gallon tank that we found out only needed to be a couple million gallons, we still would have been investing, you know, over $20 million into a tank there. Uh, but by using some green alternatives, we were able to completely eliminate that tank. So what we were doing is trying to keep that water from going to that sewer in the first place because it really didn't need to. But where we could, it, it makes complete sense to use rain gardens or permeable pavers or other mechanisms to try to keep that water out of the system in the first place. And that essentially just gives you additional capacity and, and really takes care of the water where it is, which is what should have happened in the first place. How are you paying for the the unavoidable uh, 200 some odd million dollar price tag? Our, our system is all built on rates. And so when we you know have infrastructure projects that we need to do, we need to raise our rates in order to be able to build them. And that's uh, what led us down this path of, of really trying hard to find ways to reduce those costs so that our residents wouldn't see that burden. We're a, we're a um, mid-sized post-industrial struggling city. And, and I think a lot of people here at University of Notre Dame and City of South Bend, they think of an affluent community. But in reality, um, we have uh, one in four people or persons in poverty our median household income is 50% below the national average. Uh, and these are things that were driving us to really push hard to try to find ways to reduce our costs. And um, so we did also put in place um, a utility assistance program, which gives uh, reduced rates to our lower income residents. And so we know that 
when people are paying 10% of their household income to pay for their water and sewer bill, that it's, it's not a good place to be. And so we were trying to keep that overall burden down on an average rate of 2% MHI for the sewer and water bill. And that's been very important for us to try to try to do that so that uh, people can do those other things that are really important to their families and, and for them to be able to be successful and, and have a happy and healthy family. Eric, one, I mean, one of the things I love about what you all did is that it takes essentially what is already there and makes it work better. And then, and also, you know, kind of trimming off the excess fat, like you did with the the capacity of those tanks. It sounds to me also like, has this had a positive effect on overall operating costs as well? So it did a number of things that I didn't get into, but, you know, one of the things that we found was we just had a better understanding of what's going on in the system too. And so we would set uh, a watchdog where I know a certain sewer is usually at one foot depth at, you know, let's say 9 a.m. in the morning. And then I can set on the computer that mark so that if it starts to get to a point where it's consistently 1.2 feet instead of one or 1.3, then I know something's going on in the system. And so it probably means that we've got a buildup of grit and, and it's time to clean that system. And so we're, we're much smarter about our cleaning program and we don't have to just clean all of our sewers because, you know, you might be cleaning sewers that are already clean, but you just don't know. Um, this allows us to make sure that we're cleaning uh, areas where we know there's something going on in the system. It also, we, we could find a lot of areas where we had a lot of inflow. It could be um, water table inflow that we've got sewers that need lined, or it could have been, in, in some cases, we had um, over 10 million gallons a day of sewer or of, of water that was coming into the system from the river. Uh, the way it was set up, when the river would get to a certain level, it would backflow into the sewer system and would take up some of that capacity and was creating real issues for us. But it wasn't until we had sensors at the at each of our overflow points that we could tell that that was going on. And so we also used to just have a, a couple people that would go out, their job every day was to go out and manually look at each of these overflows. So we got 36 overflows in the river. They'd have to uh, look at the uh, overflow on the river and make notes that it wasn't overflowing or it was. And uh, by putting sensors in, you just eliminate those positions, uh, the need for those positions, and we're able to use them to do other things that needed to be done in the system. That's so cool. Is this, I mean, you mentioned this at the onset, this was <clears throat> something that was done in collaboration with University of Notre Dame engineers. Is is this the kind of thing that other cities could do, or is this, this sort of technology available elsewhere? Yeah, so... What happened then was uh, shortly after the technology was developed and our initial graduate student who was working on that started a company and, and actually um, worked on, on building what was called the MNET at the time, which is now part of Xylem. Um, and, and so they do this uh, for living in cities all over. They're doing it in Kansas City and San Francisco and Philadelphia and Buffalo and all sorts of, I think, Cincinnati. A lot, lot of big cities that are having combined issues, but also have pipes that in some cases are oversized or were overbuilt that, that have capacity that they can use. But there's, I think, a growing understanding of the importance of using sensor technology and using just data to better inform our decision processes. We've got some other things that we're currently working on, uh, one of which will be 
um, even looking at water quality data along with water quantity data. So instead of just trying to keep flow out of the river, we can decide which flow we want to keep out of the river, and which flow may be okay to go to the river. And so when you've got water quality data, you know that if you've got an industrial area that might be uh, having pollutants that are much more dangerous to the river, we can set the algorithm so that that flow takes primacy and, and gets to the interceptor into the treatment plant before uh, something that would be less strong and, and um, have less of an impact on the river. And so those are things I think that you'll see the technology continue to get better, sensor technology and the control systems will continue to get better. And really it just makes sense for any of these old cities to invest in, in systems like this because your capex is one-tenth to one-hundredth of what it would be of building new assets and, and storage facilities and things like that. Sounds like retrofitting your uh, sewer stormwater system would be a full-time job in and of itself, but I'm kind of curious if there's anything else as public works director that's uh, top of mind right now that uh, our audience might be interested in. You know, the, the sewers, we had a good opportunity here because like I said, you, you don't see them and they're underground and, and we didn't have a real good understanding of what's going on. But quite honestly, um, even where you have an idea of what's going on, uh, you can use data to better inform your decision making. And so I think, you know, there's lots of systems in the transportation world now that are smart, intelligent transportation systems that better utilize um, cameras and understanding not, not just cars, but people walking, people biking, all those interactions that you want to have on a street. You know, we've got sensors that look at the temperature of the road and the humidity and, and the conditions so that um, we know when we have to put salt on the road. And, and if we um, have a situation where it may be 25 degrees out and snowing, but the ground temp is still 40 degrees, we know, and it's sunny, we know that we don't need to put salt on the road and we, we can save that from, you know, not just operational costs, but also the impact of having salt, uh, you know, that's gonna go in storm lines and in, into the river. I think really it's a, a pretty neat day in, in public works in that there's lots of these different sensors and different informational, you know, just things that are giving us data so that we can better inform our decisions, whether it's in the transportation, water, sewer, uh, any of these realms that we can start looking at and, and just doing a better job of serving our public um, by using that information. As we're doing this, California is in the middle of its, you know, getting a bazillion gallons of water dumped on it. And I know that's obviously a very extreme example, but is the kind of technology that you're talking about something that could potentially stop flooding in, in something as, as, as huge as that? Yeah, climate change is going to be a huge issue for us. And, and that's something that, you know, some of these flooding issues, um, they're so significant that it, it's really hard to do much about them. But it's really difficult. And, and we get really frustrated residents when we've got, you know, the river flowing back into their neighborhoods. Um, there's not much you can do about it when, you know, we had uh, here, you know, just, uh, you know, my 10 years of, of being public works director, I've had a 500-year uh, rain event and a 1,000-year storm event. Seems unlikely that those two cases would happen um, in, in such a short period of time, but you're seeing it all over 
the world that, that these events are having more and more frequently, and we're going to have to change uh, those frequency curves um, on, on what a thousand-year storm event is, right? Um, but when you have those, there's just so much water coming at you that there's usually not a lot that, that sensors are going to do. They might be able to do some things uh, by closing. You can have valves on storm sewers to close them so it doesn't backflow into your neighborhoods. But at some point, once it goes over the river's edge, um, you know, short of building walls along the sewer, along the river, which you obviously don't want to do, you know, those are things that will be worked on in the next couple decades. And, and hopefully just by us having a better understanding of the impact of climate change and the needs to make a change and, and lots of people are working on stuff that are making positive impacts. It's just going to take some time to get there. Well, on behalf of uh, Liz, Eric, Horbath, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us here on the Public Money Pod and telling us about a remarkable story of infrastructure finance and technology and innovation and all kinds of other things that we like to talk about here on the podcast. So thanks so much for taking the time. You're welcome. Appreciate the time, Marlon and Liz. Well, thanks again to Eric Horvath from the city of South Bend, Indiana, for talking to us about some of the interesting innovation that's happening in their infrastructure space, particularly their stormwater management. Always exciting to hear those kinds of stories and uh, definitely the sort of story that we like to hear at the Public Money Pod. So now it's time for our listener question, our extra credit segment. And uh, this time we have a question from Tyler about social bonds. Hi, my name is Tyler Buff. I live in Chicago. I've heard that the city is selling something uh, like social bonds or bonds with like a social impact focus. Uh, how exactly are these uh, different from typical bonds that municipalities sell? And are there any challenges or setbacks that these specific bonds uh, might face? Well, thanks, Tyler. That's uh, an excellent question, as all of our listener questions are. We could, uh, Liz, we could probably talk all day about this. We could probably do several episodes on social bonds and how social bonds fit into the broader uh, kind of ESG picture in the municipal market and just the broader set of questions about how governments these days are uh, maybe resetting their priorities to to try to leverage municipal finance to have more of a direct social impact. Uh, so lots here that we could talk about, but I think uh, the, the most direct and immediate answers to, to Tyler's questions, I think we need to make sure that we make a couple things clear. So first and foremost, the, the social bonds that the city of Chicago is doing are in fact uh, a series of, of bonds. It's about, a, as I understand, about a $150 million issue that's designed to to queue up a bunch of projects that may or may not have happened without this particular borrowing. And it's all projects that are designed to have some sort of demonstrable impact in the community. So things like affordable housing, having more of a, more of a, of a kind of general obligation uh, contribution to affordable housing rather than funding that through tax credits and uh, and some of the other tools that we use typically to do affordable housing. Uh, things like uh, planting more trees, things like economic development projects, uh, street beautification, and, and other kinds of investments in historically underserved neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. These are all the kinds of projects 
that we're seeing uh, incorporated into this social bond deal. And again, some of these projects were in the works and they've been put into this deal. Uh, some of these projects were not happening and, and they're they're happening because of this deal. And it's so it's definitely an, an interesting mix of investments and something that has been tried other places. There have been other cities that have done the same sort of structure. So this is social bonds as a way of kind of bundling together a bunch of different kinds of projects that are going to be financed through what are relatively traditional municipal bonds. Now, this is in contrast to a social impact bond, which is something that our listeners are probably also familiar with. A social impact bond is first and foremost, not not actually a bond, which is something that has been a, a gripe of those of us in the public finance space for a long time. But the idea with a social impact bond is that somebody makes an, an upfront investment in some sort of a programmatic or other in, uh, intervention that's designed to get some traction on a, a chronic problem in the in the world of public service delivery. So there have been social impact bonds in areas like uh, prison recidivism. So trying to to keep people from repeat offending, keep juveniles in particular from repeat offending and, and keeping them out of the criminal justice system. There's been social impact bonds that have been designed to do things like more effectively deploy resources in the foster care system. Uh, a lot of those sorts of investments uh, have been made because it can cost a lot of money up front to try to bring some new technology or some new service delivery model to bear on a, on a specific uh, in a specific geography or in a specific type of system, the idea there is that there are investors who will come in and will front the money to do that intervention, and then there's a careful program evaluation to see if that investment did the thing that it was intended to do, and if it does the thing that it's intended to do, it's designed to have cost savings, and so the investors who put the money in up front get repaid on the back end with the cost savings that result from more effective, more cost-containing, typically, um, service delivery. So that's a social impact bond. There's a long discussion we could have about that. That's been tried lots of other places all over the world, including some in the U.S. This is a different sort of thing. There's likely to be, uh, in response to Chicago social bonds, some additional inquiry into the impact that this, these investments have had in communities. But it won't be the the kind of very narrow, targeted, structured program evaluation that we've seen following social impact bonds. That doesn't, that's not a, a good thing or a bad thing. It's just to say that it's a different kind of a structure. Now, uh, Tyler's question was about, or part of the question anyway, was about the impact of uh, these social bonds, or, or I should say some of the challenges potentially surrounding these social bonds. And we could talk about a lot of them, but one that comes to mind right away is that the city, as and has been the case in, in similar social bond issues, the idea here is to try to draw um, retail investors, to try to draw individual investors to come in and, and buy these bonds. And Liz, I know you have uh, done some work in this space. When, when municipalities go out and, and try to sell bonds directly to mom and pop investors, what are some of the challenges and opportunities you've seen? I think the the biggest challenge with municipal bonds, and, and this has been talked about, it seems like forever, is, is access to the municipal market. And this is generally because the, you know, say you're a retail investor and you want to buy some municipal bonds, 
you need to have around 5,000 in cash or, or more lying around to invest. And so right there, it eliminates a lot of, a lot of people who don't have that lying around. Um, and so what Chicago is doing is trying to lower that bar, that barrier to entry. And, and that's kind of one aspect of the, the social bond quality here is that, and the city is saying this, like they want their Chicagoans and people in the, in the region to be able to invest in their own communities. And so um, what Chicago is doing here is it's, it's hired a, a small handful of, of, of banks and brokerage firms and, and um, firms that will be managing the bond offering. And so anyone who is a customer at, at one of those brokerage firms or has an account can can buy a Chicago bond through those firms for less than five thousand dollars. However, it's um, according to what what the city is saying here, it says the bond denominations can be as little as one thousand, not the usual five thousand. And then interest is paid twice a year, like your standard bond. So but a thousand dollars is still not it's still a barrier to entry for a lot of people. It's not going to be like, you know, <laughs> everyone in Chicago will be able to invest a little bit in their city and then get some, get some interest back in return. It, but I think the idea is, is that it, it does create more of that communal investment idea, which is kind of one aspect of the social bond that we're talking about here. And of course, the other aspect is it's, it's projects for the social good. So I think that's, that's kind of what distinguishes the approach here, but it's also going to be a challenge. And I, I do wonder also if the city's going to get criticism or praise for for lowering the barrier, but maybe not lowering it enough. Um, other places, uh, I've written about Berkeley, California, uh, which is trying to do something similar on a much smaller scale in terms of investment. It and, and also in terms of bond size, it's trying to figure out how to use technology to issue micro bonds. And the bottom line there is you could invest as little as like a hundred dollars and, and earn a, a chunk of a, and have a micro bond um, in Berkeley that then would go towards a larger project like a, you know, housing or something like that. That city has been trying to figure that out like literally for years now. And so again, huge challenge there. Chicago's doing it on a, on a slightly larger scale, a little bit more in a much more traditional format, but that's the crux of it all here. And from what I see is, getting more people in your community access to being able to invest where they live. I mean, that's that's really at the heart of it here. And so that's what Chicago's trying to do. Other places have tried to do that. That's, it's, it's, it's difficult. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.